0: In your own words, how would you define consent? Uh, you have asked me this question of how I would define consent before, and I couldn't quite answer it. And I've taken some time to think about it, and some time has passed, and I still can't answer it.
1: That that is a really a really good question, and <laughs> found myself thinking about this, and instantly uh, having so much sympathy for the plight. <laughs> of of legislative draftsmen who've had to, you know, approach this question itself.
2: I really struggled with this, and I think it's the lawyer in me. I just, I can't commit to a definition at this time, I think. I've perhaps read too much of the literature about problems with different definitions and, and whether consent should be more than just, you know, a voluntary agreement.
3: What do we mean by sexual consent? It turns out that that's quite a difficult question. In this five-part series, we will explore our ideas about consent, where they've come from, and how we tend to use them, particularly in our laws, and how these ideas have evolved both legally and socially. My name is Amrita Alawalia McMedis, and this is The Age of Consent. last episode we looked at the stereotypes and misperceptions we hold about rape and how these can have very real consequences for identifying, reporting and accessing justice. In this episode we will look more closely at how laws on rape tend to work in practice. In particular we will look at how consent is closely bound up with judgments about credibility and who is telling the truth. When we last checked in on the story of the Maiden Tribute, Stead had succeeded in his mission to raise the age of consent to 16. This was a change that he and fellow social reformers hoped would go a long way to protecting young working class girls from the perils of early and harmful sex. The law bringing forward these changes was the Criminal Law Amendment Bill of 1885. This law marked a significant legal and social shift. For centuries prior to this, English law had defined rape as carnal knowledge of a woman forcibly and against her will, with later revisions replacing against her will with without her consent. This was a broad definition and it left a great deal of room for interpretation by judges and juries. But the Criminal Law Amendment Act, in theory at least, made one thing very clear. A girl under the age of 16 could not consent. Under Section 5 of the Act, carnal knowledge, outside marriage of course, was a misdemeanor for girls aged between 13 and 16 and a felony if girls were under 13. Now you might think this sounds fairly straightforward, but it is clear that often courts simply did not take this change into account. In many cases that appeared after this change in law, courts continued to question whether girls under 16 had consented or whether they had resisted. In many of these old cases, it almost appears as if underage victims themselves are on trial, as much as the defendants were. Courts would question girls about their sexual history, or try to find evidence of bad moral character, something that might suggest that they in fact consented to sex, even though, according to the law, this ought to have been irrelevant. Merely showing that intercourse had taken place with a girl under the age of consent ought to have been enough. So even after the age of consent was raised to 16, courts were reluctant to believe underage victims and enforce the legislation fully. We spoke again to Dr. Laura lamas who does a lot of work on historical archives of such cases.
0: And when we think about definitions and histories, I think it's important to start from acknowledging that consent and rape are not just legal terms. Although as legal academics and practitioners and courts, we always seem to think that these are purely legal terms, but these terms that carry both sort of common sense meaning and this common understanding of what rape and consent is, it has really differed from the legal one. And I think that has also developed differently from the legal understanding of it. So then when it comes to our legal understanding and what shaped that legal understanding, I think it's a bit more restricted and it hasn't developed quite as freely maybe as those public ideas. But it's clear that even in the legal sphere, ideas of consent has changed in relation to
3: broader societal and policy changes for sure. Laura tells us about the proxies used at the time of the maiden tribute to make judgments about whether someone bringing forward a rape claim was credible. We see a very clear and interesting shift
0: in sort of standards of good sexual behavior in 20th century. But in still most of 19th century, sexual behavior was something that was meant to be restricted to marriage. Marriage was always portrayed as the ultimate social good, particularly for women. And any sort of sex outside the marriage was always framed as harmful. So when we're thinking about sexual behavior and we think about how some of those norms and ideas were maybe reflected in courts, it's good to bear in mind that all of the cases that we are looking at, they all dealt with sex outside marriage. Marital rape was not a criminal offense until 1991. So all of the cases we are looking at would be cases between non-married couples. And also, I think, interestingly, a lot of the cases that I have reviewed, it would also be cases where the women was not married. So it was very rare for married women to bring a, a sexual offence claim against any man, partially because of the reputational issues and stigma that was attached to a lot of these crimes still then, and I think in
3: some ways can still be. So marital status was key in determining who could and couldn't withhold consent. But other aspects of a person's identity were also used to decide whether or not someone had been raped.
0: I would say that there's a clear class dynamic at the core of a lot of the legal interventions that we have seen when it comes to sexual offences, but that class dynamic has definitely impacted the way that consent has been understood and used in courts in particular. If you look back at um, 19th century, 20th century, the era that I've been um, looking at in my current project, we see that actually nearly all of the victims and defendants that ended up in court were of working class background. It's not that cases with middle or upper class people didn't happen or it wasn't that sexual abuse was more rife in working class communities. It just meant that those cases didn't end up in court for whatever reason, for settlements out of court, for reputational damage, fears, and so on. So actually nearly all the cases that end up in court in 19th century, early 20th century for uh, rape, sexual abuse of any kind, they are clearly people who are working class backgrounds, which is very interesting, sort of begins to show some of those class dimensions here. In the cases that I have reviewed, there is a, a really clear focus on working class communities, and, and a lot of the prejudices towards working class communities and the families that we saw in public discussions, those prejudices are clearly replicated in courts. Often there was this general assumption that there was lack of family values within working communities. And this goes back to what I was saying before, for example, that courts were quite reluctant or unable to recognize incest. So those class dimensions behind it is part of the reasons why incest was not so readily recognized in these cases. The courtroom narratives often reveal excessive focus on alcoholism, overcrowding, and using these as signs of sort of wider moral issues. There was also excessive focus on what was considered to be improper sexual behavior, both by the victims and perhaps surprisingly by the victim's mother. So if the mother of the victim was known to be an alcoholic or to have affairs, this definitely came up in the court as somehow undermining the victim's credibility. Almost to say that, well, if this, this is what the mother is like, imagine what the daughter is like. And there's a clear concern that working class girls were overly sexualized by their communities that they were having sex too early, they were having sex outside marriage, or that they were being promiscuous. And this assumption that working class girls were promiscuous was openly discussed in courts uh, in 19th century, but actually in 20th century, all the way in 20th century, we see references to this. And I would say we see it in courts still today sometimes. In sort of the earlier cases I was looking at, the court judges often openly speak about girls of that class, and they speak about how working class girls should not be trusted. They openly say this to juries, these are noted in files, and this is almost discussed as something that is a fact rather than their own assumption. Working class girls were presumed to be sexually active, and I see in some of the cases that I looked at that even victims who were below the age of 12 were questioned about their sexual history in courts. They were medically examined for signs of hymen or evidence of previous sexual encounters, and... If there was any evidence to show that this girl, this victim was, uh, would have had sex before, their credibility was immediately questioned. In most of the cases that I have looked at, the victims were quite young. And, and then to be the older that the victim got, the less likely it was that the courts would actually take their claim seriously. And But despite this young age of the victims, the courts often failed to view the victims as victims at all it almost appears that the victims weren't trial themselves as much as the defendants. And they questioned them about their sexual history, and they tried to find evidence that they had bad character in their actions, or that they had been swearing, or things that would show that they somehow lacked the kind of moral fiber that you were expecting a victim to have. So the glass dynamics were clearly there in courts. And I think it's fair to say that the court system was stacked against women and girls who brought the claims, I think in many ways it still is. But I would say from a historical perspective is that at times and at the same time, working class men use the same things that were used against women in their advantage. So in some of the cases that I've seen, working class men have used overcrowding or alcoholism as mitigating factors successfully in courts. I've seen many cases from 19th century where alcohol was used as a mitigating factor for rape, even in the case of rape for small children. It wouldn't be the case anymore. You wouldn't be able to use alcoholism now, but then it was used quite frequently as something that, well, it sort of explains why, why he did what he did. So while the class dynamics were clearly there in courts, it didn't manifest in the same way when it came to men and women. Something that women would be punished for by using alcohol, men could use to their advantage.
3: To bring us back to the 21st century, Eamon Keane tells us a bit more about the modern context and the role that consent has come to play in our legal framing of rape.
1: One of the key features in recent years has been to foreground the protection of sexual autonomy. It's a kind of guiding principle by which the rest of the law uh, is, is structured and how one protects sexual autonomy tends to relate uh, to the question of consent. When consent becomes central to a particular criminal provision, then the question becomes, well, what is consent? Uh, and we've seen different jurisdictions tend to approach this question somewhat differently. Uh, in Scotland, the, the notion of free agreement became uh, defined in the legislation itself in 2009. And then the Act provides a list of instances where free agreement and consent would be absent, but that list isn't exhausted. So I think when we think about how do these laws tend to be implemented, there is a a foregrounding of of consent. It becomes a central part of the offence. It becomes something for the Crown uh, or the prosecution rather to prove. And then we also see legislatures grapple with how to define consent itself so so they need to provide more guidance to courts to juries uh, and that then becomes a live issue in of itself as well lack of consent if indeed consent is lacking is at the heart of what is wrong about the sexual conduct in question so uh, many academics have have published work uh, on this but i've heard called consent moral magic because it changes a situation which might be unlawful into one that might be lawful and certainly the approach has tended to be that what makes certain types of sexual conduct wrongful is the absence of consent that is a rather crude summary because because not all sexual offenses fit in with that paradigm but it's the lack of consent which changes the conduct what makes it wrongful
3: Eamon researches criminal law and evidence at the University of Edinburgh. His work looks at the law of evidence and how and why the law in practice sometimes strays from the intent of the law on the books. To give us a sense of how rape trials tend to work in practice, Eamon talks us through what happens when a case goes to court.
1: For this example, I'm talking about someone who's, who's over the age of consent. So we're not dealing with cases whereby uh consent is deemed to be lacking by virtue of someone's age or mental disorder for example Uh, how it tends to operate is the complainer in scotland or the complainant in england and wales who will give an account uh, of the sexual activity whereby obviously their position is consent was not present uh, during this interaction or consent was present initially but i withdrew consent then you tend to have an examination not only of that evidence, but of any other supporting evidence which might bolster or lend credibility to that side of the story. Usually, but not always, and again, I'm speaking in somewhat crude terms here, but in most of these cases, in my professional experience, the defence tends to be that no consent was present. So there tends to be, not always, but there tends to be uh, an acknowledgement that yes, sexual activity did occur, but that was with consent. Therefore, you have these two competing accounts. And of course, it's not for the accused, due to the presumption of innocence, to prove anything. The Crown prosecution has to to prove they are guilty, but the dynamic of these trials tends to be, uh, using that example, On the one hand, sexual activity, yes, it did happen. uh, But no, I didn't consent. And then the competing narrative, which is, well, it it may have happened, but in fact, um, consent was present.
3: What Eamon describes here is a version of the familiar trope of he said, she said, where a judge and jury are presented with two competing stories and have to decide which one they are going to believe. And as Eamon mentioned, we operate under presumption of innocence innocent until proven guilty. So it's not the responsibility of the defendant, the alleged rape perpetrator, to prove that they are innocent. Instead, it is the responsibility of the alleged victim to prove that they did not consent.
1: Inevitably, and this is what some people find problematic about how these courses tend to play out, inevitably then the focus becomes very much on the complainant who's saying well there was no consent to this particular sexual interaction so what happened in terms of the interaction itself becomes the focus of the court but other types of evidence tend to be led to there might be medical evidence which in most cases uh is is usually sort of down the middle which says well sexual activity has occurred but the evidence doesn't support either narrative whether that's consensual or in consensual sexual activity. So that medical evidence only gets you so far. You tend then sometimes to also see in these kinds of cases, evidence of distress of the individual in question tending to be led because that then is evidence which supports one side of the, the prosecution's narrative. Of course, it doesn't get them all the way and there might be alternative explanations or the jury might not accept that particular evidence. But in a general sense, that is the dynamic in these trials so the focus is very much upon the alleged sexual encounter and following on from that this is where some of the criticism tends to arise because of course the accused uh, the defense uh, are entitled to test the evidence to to present that counter narrative to look for issues with credibility and reliability And so you tend to then uh, often have a position where parties are diametrically opposed, you know, the complainant says this did happen, the defence say this didn't happen, and so the focus becomes on, on trying to work that out within the parameters of a criminal trial.
3: The idea that consent was lacking is what is relevant for rape trials, but finding evidence to prove a lack of consent isn't particularly easy to do.
1: I mean, in the most recent period for which information is available in Scotland, for example, there were 300 prosecutions for rape or attempted rape, but we know that there was somewhere in the region of 2,343 reports to police of rape or attempted rape. So, there are reasons uh, for that attrition rate. Numerous reasons. In Scotland, as I've mentioned before, there are certain evidential considerations that don't necessarily apply elsewhere, which do make it more difficult for there to be a sufficiency of evidence. So, what am I talking about when I refer to a sufficiency of evidence? Well, I'm talking about the assessment by the prosecuting authorities about the case as its whole. They will only prosecute in the public interest, but also they have to be satisfied that there is sufficient admissible evidence and they often also take a view on credibility and reliability of witnesses right at the outset, or they do take a view on that. That is a relevant factor as well.
3: Before even going to court, cases are screened. What type of evidence is available for the case? Do we think the person alleging rape is credible? If the answers to these questions is no, the case is unlikely to make it to court. As we saw in previous episodes, we have quite specific views on what rape looks like and who rape victims and perpetrators are, and these views don't always line up with reality. Many legislatures have put in place mechanisms to try and prevent these views from interfering with due process in these kinds of cases.
1: Even though we had what was prima facie quite progressive legislation on the books or would have been perceived uh, to be progressive, we had initially some decisions which didn't seem to accord with the legislative tension. So judges deciding, well, actually, in fact, I think the fact that this woman did have a sexual relationship. With someone else known to the accused is a relevant question in the context of, of whether they consented to sex with the accused so initially there was concerns about that and then the appeal court in scotland issued a five judge bench decision where they said you know this just stuff isn't relevant it's it's on the defense to prove that this kind of evidence should be admitted into trials they bear the onus They must make an application in terms of the legislation and the evidence has to be relevant at common law and in terms of the statute. But notwithstanding uh, this judgement and notwithstanding the law that we have on the books, we've seen instances and reported judgments from the appeal court where inferior courts seem to have admitted evidence of sexual history and character evidence which on any basic understanding of the common law, and indeed of the statute, is completely out of keeping with what the appeal court had said earlier.
3: This discrepancy between legal intent and legal practice is the object of Eamon's latest research.
1: I mean, historically, uh, there has been incredibly problematic practices in Scotland, as there were in other jurisdictions, which did trade on what would be known as rape myths. but, But we now have quite tight rules, which in theory, anyway, prohibit all of that, in essence, how effective those rules are in practice, though, is also a a relevant question. And it's one that I'm, you know, exploring with Professor Sharon Cowan of the University of Edinburgh, and Professor Vanessa Monroe of the University of Warwick, in a kind of empirical project that looks to see whether the law in the books is, is how it's translating to the law in action. And we can say that it's a a relevant question of study because there has been a lot of Scottish Appeal Court cases which have indicated that something is going wrong with how how these laws on sexual history evidence are being applied in practice.
3: Something that has repeatedly come to the fore when having these conversations around assessing consent is the issue of credibility and who should be believed. To understand credibility better, we spoke to Julia Simon Kerr, who researches credibility and lying in the law at the University of Connecticut.
2: So if we think about defining credibility, it's really important to understand that truthfulness and credibility are often equated in the legal system. They're often equated culturally and used as synonyms, but the two concepts are not the same. You can have credibility and be lying, and you can be telling the truth and lack credibility. And the preeminent law dictionary lawyers in the U.S. turn to as an authority, the definition that, that that dictionary has had for credibility for over 200 years says that credibility is a measure of whether a witness is worthy of belief. And I think that that is really the right way to understand credibility. It, it's not a measure of whether a witness is truthful, but whether that witness is perceived as worthy of belief. And that helps see the way that U.S. law treats credibility and it allows factors like outward appearance and prior convictions to come in. And also why we care so much about whether people are performing our expectations of what a credible person would look like in a particular situation or not. And partly it's because we don't have access to whether they're actually telling the truth. So all we can do is look externally and say, do they look like I should believe them? And do they look like they're worthy of being believed?
3: In the United States, as in the UK, there is a long legacy of using a victim's sexual history as a proxy to help determine her credibility in court. And similarly, the US have also implemented laws to try and prevent this from happening. These are known as rape shield
2: laws. The use of sexual history evidence, so that's essentially you have somebody who's alleging they were a victim of rape. And in the trial, the defense tries to bring in, well, this woman likes to sleep with lots of different men. That's her sexual history. And the use of that kind of sexual history evidence in sexual assault trials is actually part of a broader phenomenon of connecting women's credibility with evidence that women were not maintaining norms of sexual propriety. So that women were behaving in unchaste ways. And so the use of this uh, sexual history evidence in rape trials is connected to broader conceptions about what it is for a woman to have honor that have informed how credibility and honesty itself is understood for women. So in the 18th, 19th, and even early 20th centuries, which I focus on because those were really formative times for the common law, in those times, the very way we conceptualize honesty and whether honesty was important for women was different. A woman's honor was defined with reference to her relationships with men. So uh, there's a phrase to make an honest woman of her, which commonly referred to you know oh this woman she slept with this man and they weren't married and he's going to make an honest woman out of her by marrying her for example um as that suggests her credibility hinged on her interactions with men a woman could regain her honesty her actual honesty itself if she married the man who had impregnated her, let's say. So by the same logic, an unchaste woman, a woman who didn't comply with norms of sexual propriety, lost both her honor and her credibility. She was not believable. You can see this connection in Lots of different ways in in literature, of course. Um, And then also in the law in both the U.S. and the U.K. as well. So for women, moral purity was the equivalent. It was so intertwined that you would use morals for women where you would use honesty for men. And given that connection, I did a bunch of research years ago looking at how in the U.S. in the 19th and early 20th centuries, attorneys were actually trying to impeach the credibility of female witnesses with evidence they that they lacked chastity and this was not just in sexual assault cases this was in cases where women were just coming in to say you know i saw somebody running down the street and later on there was an arson they were just witnesses they were not alleging sexual assault and attorneys on the other side were trying to say don't believe her because she was seen walking at night with Johnny to whom she's not married. So attorneys were trying to do this. And in parts of, and particularly the Southern United States, this form of impeachment was accepted into the early 20th century. So you could impeach female witnesses with evidence that they were not chaste, that they were not complying with sexual mores. But in most of the U.S. courts eventually rejected the relevance of this evidence. They said, wait a second, I don't see what evidence that a woman is not chaste has to do with whether I should believe her when she's just a witness in this case. So we're not going to allow that evidence to come into the courtroom. So the same courts that denied that there was a link between unchastity and credibility When female witnesses testified in cases that did not involve their own sexual assaults, those same courts often abandoned that logic when the witness was a woman bringing a rape accusation. So in in rape trials and sexual assault trials, judges would almost invariably let in this evidence of prior sexual history of women who were testifying. And they would say that, oh, well, in my jurisdiction, we're not allowed to admit unchastity evidence to impeach the witness's credibility. But the reason that this evidence can come in is because it's relevant on the question of consent. It makes it more or less likely that the victim did consent or did not consent.
3: These days, we might hope we can disentangle a woman's chastity from her honesty.
2: Yet, rape and
3: sexual assault trials seem too often to trigger foregone conclusions about these things. It seems that we struggle in not believing that a woman's sexual history is intimately linked to her capacity to deny consent.
2: Ironically, though, judges would assert that. But to get to that conclusion, they needed to go through credibility. So what is the logical path between a woman's sexual history and whether she consented in this particular time to this particular sexual encounter, the judges found themselves referring to credibility in order to make that logical connection. Because credibility is necessarily at issue when a defendant disputes the woman's account that she did not consent, right? We're saying you shouldn't believe her. She is lying. She did consent. And that's all about her credibility. And so this sexual history evidence is coming in to suggest, well, I don't think I believe her story because she's done some things that society would say are questionable sexual behavior in the past. And therefore, you know, I think it's more likely that she consented in this instance. So in a sense, consent became an excuse. To keep admitting evidence of unchastity when really the judges believed that that evidence was probative of a woman's credibility on the question of whether she was raped
3: of course sexual history is not the only factor that impacts whether or not someone's rape allegation will be believed by courts julia highlights another important strand How plausible is her story?
2: First, we have to think about, is there a distinction between what what we call in the law narrative plausibility and credibility? Are those the same thing or are they two different things? And my answer to that is that they're intertwined. They are two conceptually different things, but they are they feed into each other. So, if the witness is more credible through other factors, then the witness's story may be understood as more credible. On the other hand, if a witness is telling a story that seems implausible to the fact finder, then she may be viewed as less credible as a person, more generally. So, there there two things are very deeply interconnected. But narrative plausibility focuses on the story that's being told. And it is in some ways conceptually different from credibility, which is focused on features of the witness. If a rape victim reports being attacked by a stranger in the dark who had a weapon, for example, which is a very stereotypic rape narrative, often seen as more credible by virtue of that story being one that the fact finder, whether it's a judge or a jury, understands as meeting the stereotype of what a rape looks like. Conversely, you know, someone who reports a rape by an intimate partner or in a situation where that the victim was out drinking and having a good time and maybe wearing what's understood as provocative clothing, that narrative does not fit as neatly into many fact finders' conception of what rape is. And that victim might therefore be understood as less credible because the narrative itself does not fit into the stereotype. And and that's kind of a reinforcing cycle because, of course, it's easier to prove a lack of consent when there is a weapon, when the rapist is a stranger, than it is to prove it when the two people are known to each other and maybe have a past sexual history together. And therefore, because there's less pressure on that concept of consent in one narrative than in the other, there's also less pressure on the credibility of the victim because her words are not as central. We tend to understand that stranger, violent, rape narrative um, much more easily and believe it more easily. So there's less pressure on credibility. All the perceptions we have and the stories we tell
3: about who rapes and who is raped influences how credible a complainant appears. And the influence these stories will have will also depend on who is assessing the
2: complainant's credibility. Credibility is entirely in the eye of the beholder. It's entirely outward facing. And this means that the question of to whom is the central question in credibility. Who is making that assessment? Because It's that person who will assign that value. There's nothing else to credibility other than that eye of the beholder judgment. So it will it will matter. And, and that's why a lot of emphasis has been placed on training law enforcement, for example, to be respectful of victims who come in and say that they've been the victim of a rape or a sexual assault to follow procedures and not just discount that narrative because it doesn't jive with whatever that particular officer thinks a rape looks like, for example. And then prosecutors actually wield enormous power in this area as well. And there's some really interesting work by a colleague of mine, Anna Offit, on the topic of the prosecutorial imagination and essentially how prosecutors think a lot about What jurors will think when they are shaping their cases, when they're deciding what cases to bring, when they're deciding what evidence to put on in the courtroom. So they're actually having discussions of imagining the minds of jurors. And thinking about whether this particular rape victim is going to be credible to those jurors. And a lot of those imaginings are just extremely stereotypical. They're, oh, well, this person has connections with law enforcement, so they're likely to believe X. Or this person lives in a community where they have a lot of negative interaction with law enforcement, so they're likely to believe Y. You know, this kind of thing, and that's actually shaping how cases at least criminal prosecutions are brought and it's really fascinating to think about how that prosecutorial imagination itself is is shaping how credibility is going to be discussed in the courtroom and how they're going to try to make victims seem credible to those imagined jurors about whom the prosecutors really don't know very much and then, of course, judges matter a great deal and, and actual jurors matter a great deal. I mean, this is one of the reasons that there have been pushes for greater diversity in the judiciary, because different life experiences by virtue of being a woman and not a man will shape how a judge understands the credibility of a woman who's coming in and discussing a life experience that may be a rape or sexual assault. And so diversity of fact-finders in and of itself will make a difference there. Talking about
3: the diversity of judges and juries brings to the fore the fact that people making decisions in rape trials are just that. They're people. And with very little evidence to go on, and many prejudices, perceptions, and biases to resist, they are taking on a difficult task.
2: Catherine McKinnon, who's a brilliant feminist scholar recently made an argument that unless we get consent out of the definition of rape, then the sexual history of victims is always going to seem relevant in rape prosecutions. And I think this, this really has to do with this connection between credibility and, and consent, because when it boils down to it, you know, consent is it's entirely inner, you know, like did that person in that moment agree or not? And obviously there often is lots of other evidence of whether there was consent or there was not consent, but in a lot of cases there isn't. There's just the victim saying I did not consent and the defendant saying that there was consent. And then you're going to go back to who is more credible. And when you go back to who is more credible, then all of these Factors that we culturally think are relevant to credibility come back in. And for women, because of this long history of connecting sexual virtue with honesty and integrity, it's so difficult to take that out of the equation and say, you know, that's just... Not relevant. How does that help us figure out who is telling the truth here? And so it's difficult. There's just an intuition that also, you know, the sexual history between these two people in particular, right? We should know about that because that might shape whether we believe that there was no consent given in this particular instance. So You know, Catherine McKinnon's argument is consent is the reason the rape complainant is put on trial and it's what makes the complaining witnesses sexual histories seem and be relevant to the accused perpetrators defense, because she says it's ultimately defined about how the victim felt about it rather than in terms of what the perpetrator did to the victim.
3: In our current legal systems, to adjudicate rape means deciding whether a rape complainant is lying when they say they did not consent to a sexual interaction. But finding evidence for a lack of consent is difficult. So instead we use lots of different proxies to help make these decisions. But these proxies are flawed and often deeply troubling. And we know it. So where do we go from here? We know the current system is struggling to produce outcomes that are fair and too frequently relies on judgment strategies that we know are biased. So is this the best that we can do? Or can we revise our legal system to work towards fairer outcomes? We will explore this in our next episode. But before we do, what happened at the trials that followed the maiden tribute? In writing the maiden tribute, Stead wanted to buy a girl so he could prove a point. Stead represented himself at his trial, giving eloquent statements that vindicated his actions as a martyr and a protector. In his mind, there was no question about the inevitable ruin that faced Eliza Armstrong as a young working class girl. The trials focused heavily on Eliza's mother, Elizabeth Armstrong, what she had known and agreed to and what kind of mother she was. When she gave her testimony and was cross-examined, Elizabeth maintained that she had believed that her daughter had been hired for domestic service. However, the fact that the Armstrongs were poor was frequently discussed, along with her mother's alcohol consumption, allegations about her behaviour and swearing, and insinuations that Eliza's father was not her real father. Throughout the trial, her moral character and the truthfulness of her testimony were continuously questioned. But why? After all, Elizabeth Armstrong was not on trial. The day after the Maiden tribute had been published, she had gone to the police and had brought the charges against Stead and his accomplices. Why did her credibility need to matter at all? this has been the third episode of the age of consent a podcast by narrative matters written and produced by me amrita alawalia McMedis, and gabrielle blackburn we would like to thank laura Lammersnyemi, Eamon keen and julia simon kerr for taking part in these interviews this series was commissioned by dr laura Lammersnyemi as part of a project funded by the Leverhulme trust the music in this episode is the victorian music box lullaby song by iron lpl To access support, you can call the National Rape Crisis Helpline at 0808 802 9999.